Good morning. Uh, today I will be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, through chapter 25, verse 19. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care. In a case of leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring his pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man... You shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go out on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. 
And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate and to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. When men fight with one another, and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him, and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall have no pity. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way that you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know what you're looking for when you sit under the preaching of God's word, but what I am praying for is what I just prayed, that the Spirit would show you Christ. That's my goal. You, if you tell me, Matthew, I'm so grateful for this and this and this and this in the sermon this morning, and I say, but did you see Jesus? And you say, I, 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 not really. Oh, <laughs> that kills me. So may we always see Christ, friends. We are, we are told that religion is a private matter. You heard that? You read that or been told that? That, that you can believe whatever you want to about God. Just keep it between you and God. Right? Keep it personal. Whatever you do, don't bring it up in the public square. Because somebody could get offended. And the worst possible thing you could ever do to someone is offend them. Besides, you don't have to believe in God at all to be a decent person, many say. So so just keep him out of your relationships with other people and everything will be fine. We're, We're told that all the time in all kinds of overt and just more subtle cultural pressure kinds of ways. But, but there's a lie at the root of that thought, friends, that position, that logic. There's, there's a lie at the root of that. What's the lie? You, you cannot separate. Here's the reality. You can't separate the way you relate to God from the way you relate to people. You can't do that. It's, it's not humanly possible. For anyone, that the nature of your relationship with God will inevitably 
out itself in the nature of your relationship with other people. If you trust God, example, you will relate very differently to your coworkers, to your parents, to your siblings, than, than somebody that does not trust God. Or if you love God, you will relate very differently to your friends and your fellow church members than, than someone who does not love God. They can't be separated. The, the book of Deuteronomy, the, these two chapters, a wonderful case study, <laughs> are filled with all kinds of laws, right? All kinds of different laws. And during Jesus' ministry, a Jewish religious leader asked him this question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Listen how Jesus replied, Matthew 2, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's making the same point that that I just did a minute ago. What, What does Jesus mean when he says, and a second is like it or like the first? He means They're two sides of the same coin. You you can't have the one without the other. They they go hand in hand. They can't be separated. If you truly love your neighbor, then you will truly love God. And if you don't love God, you will never truly love your neighbor. They can't be disconnected. 1 John 4.19 makes this crystal clear. We love because He first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. Can't be separated can't be disconnected, can't have one without the other. And that, friends, really is the logic behind this entire section of Deuteronomy. At at first glance, all of these laws are about what? How the Israelites, under the old covenant, were supposed to love their neighbor, to love each other. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't, don't do that. But there are references throughout, we're going to identify him this morning, to who God is and what God has done and what God will do. Why are those things throughout this whole passage? Because the expressions of love for neighbor that Moses requires here, they're ultimately expressions of love for the Lord. They're connected. Moses is essentially saying this, Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might by loving your neighbor in every realm of life. That's the point he's making. Friends, God requires us to love one another in the same way today. Exact same way today. Yes, what Jesus did for us on the cross, what we were singing about this morning, means we are not under the Mosaic law, the way Israel was in a covenantal sense. That's true. But the spiritual principles that are, that are behind every law, that, that are underneath every case study, 
they're, they're not rooted ultimately in, in just the old covenant. They're, they're rooted in the unchanging character of God. Who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus still requires us to love the Lord our God by loving our neighbor. That hasn't gone anywhere. And that's actually the very thing that the person and work of Christ makes possible. So, what does it look like to love our neighbor according to Deuteronomy 24 and 25? What's it look like? It means, in short, practicing justice by upholding their life. Practicing justice by upholding their life. Justice upholds the life of our neighbor. This is the main point of the whole section. Compelled by the fear of God. The Lord of life. Justice upholds the life of our neighbor. Compelled by the fear of God. The Lord of life. If, think of it this way. If, if upholding your neighbor's life is the fruit. The fear of God is the root. It's where it comes from. They're connected. If we fear the Lord who gives life and upholds life, then we'll practice justice by upholding the life of our neighbor. And, and God's word urges us to do that in at least four categories. That, that's how I've organized all the laws in here. I think it's helpful. I trust it'll serve you. So where do we need to uphold our neighbor's life? Okay, we're going to go through four categories, four contexts. But in all of them, remember, it's not just do this, don't do that. It's compelled by something, the fear of God, the Lord of life. We're going to come back to that again and again. All right, here's, here's category one. Uphold life at work. Uphold life at work. You might not realize this, but, but do you know if you have a full-time job and you work that full-time job from age 22 to age 62 and you take at least two weeks off every year, do you know how many hours you will spend your, in your life working? All you eighth grade math prodigies out there? You will spend nearly upwards of 80,000 hours working. Now, before you breathe a collective, oh gosh. <laughs> Work is good. Is it corrupted by the fall? Yes which means it's also hard. But it's good because we serve a God who works, who created us in his image. And so it's no surprise and really helpful, actually, that Moses spends a lot of time addressing the economic sphere in these chapters or the work context. How Israel is supposed to love her neighbor when it comes to work stuff, including how they handle pledges. What's a pledge? That word showed up all, the, all over the place in what we just read. A pledge is the security that you put up for a loan. Okay, so modern equivalents would be things like um, a down payment you put down for a house or the title to your car or your home or, or some other financial asset that you say to somebody that you want to get some money from. Hey, listen, if I fail to pay you back, you can keep this valuable thing. Okay, it's just security. It's a it's a pledge. So why does verse 6 say, look there, chapter 24, you can't take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, in, in your financial transactions, in your business dealings. Why can't you do that? Well, because that's how a family crushed grain. 
That's how they made food. You, you take that from them as security, and you're not just taking the millstone, you're taking their life. You're not upholding life. You're taking it away. It, it doesn't matter, Moses says, if that millstone is the only conceivable security they have left. Even if you think, I have a financial contractual right to take that. You owe me that. You may not take it. Because life is a sacred gift from the Lord. In Israel, you have to uphold life even if the contract says you have a right to do otherwise. Friend, if you, if you work in the financial sector, be careful. Be careful to not loan people money, sell insurance or investment products, or practice business in ways that make people's conditions worse. Don't, don't take advantage of people around you who are desperate. Up, uphold their life. That's the point. And, and every vocation, every vocation, refuse to do business in ways that pad your pockets at your neighbor's expense or, or that add to their suffering instead of helping them flourish. That's why the Lord forbids, look at verse 7, involuntary slavery or, or man-stealing. To, to force somebody into slavery is to steal their life. No matter how much they owe you. And it's not just your neighbor's life that matters. So does their, their personal dignity. Look at verse 10. It's why the Lord says you, you have to wait outside a debtor's home and let them bring out their pledge to you. You can't go storm, hey, move over. All your stuff's going to be mine anyway, so I want that. Boop. No, you don't do that. Even in poverty, even if you hold all the financial cards in a business relationship, you know what I'm talking about? You have all the cards. Uphold your neighbor's dignity by maintaining their agency. It's the same reason you, you must not sleep, Moses says. Don't sleep in your neighbor's pledge. How do you sleep in a pledge? Well, because they didn't have bank accounts for the most part back then. They had things. And so if you were really poor, the only thing you might own could be the cloak you wear. Your blanket, your covering by day and by night. Return it, verse 13, when the sun goes down so he has something to sleep in. What's, what's the application today? What's the, what's the principle behind that? When you enforce contractual obligations. Anybody in a job here that, where you have to enforce contractual obligations? <laughs> when you do that, be compassionate, says the Lord. Be compassionate. Uphold life at work. And notice the the Godward motivation clause in verse 13. Why? Why do this? What's Moses say? Verse 13, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You uphold life at work, that'll be righteousness for you. Now, what is, what is he not saying? He's not talking about earning right standing with God. 
Okay, don't pull up, gotcha, Moses. Yeah, that's not the gospel. <laughs> no, okay? Not at all. He's talking about ethical righteousness. Virtue, the, the way we live. But loving our neighbor at work, here's the point. It means imitating our righteous God in being compassionate and unselfish in what we require from people, especially when they owe us. Well, why should I do that, Matthew? If they have a contractual obligation, why should I show any compassion, any life upholding? Like, I get all that. I'll do all that with my Christian friends. But, dude, this is work, okay? (laughs) This is business. This this isn't like you and your pastor world and we have to be all nice and gentle. This is dog eat dog. And I was made for this because I'm a a finance guy. (laughs) Friend, even if you are, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ never says, pay what you owe. That's not the gospel. It's good news of salvation. It's good news of forgiveness. I, I'm not saying it's wrong to enforce a contract. It's not what I'm saying. I am saying that we need to do that in ways that, that don't just selfishly serve your own interest. Even if you technically have a right to just ignore a client or a customer's concerns. Be gracious to your neighbor at work the way God has been gracious to you. If you're an employer, you will ultimately answer to God for how you treat your employees. You treat them with justice and compassion. Don't don't withhold their wages, Moses says, verses 14 and 15. Pay them as soon as the work is finished so that they can buy some food to eat that night. Don't take advantage of them lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And he goes further. Chapter 25, verse 4, when Moses says, do not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Moses, do you need a nap? Like, what's what's with bringing in the animal reference in the middle of, we're talking about loving our neighbor. I appreciate that theme, but like, that's for the barn. What's his point? He's illustrating something, right? In all of life, in every realm of life, but certainly including employees that help make your company successful. They have a right, that animal too, to share in the reward of their labor. They have a right to do that. Upholding life at work also means you you refuse to fudge numbers or inflate material costs when you're submitting a bid just because you think you can get the money. Deuteronomy 25, 16, look there. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly are an abomination to the Lord your God. Then and now, living justly, my friends, at work, requires imitating the truthful character of our King. Uphold your neighbor's life at work. That's, that's context one, category one. Here's the second one. Uphold life among the poor or for the poor. What's this look like? Well, well, here, this is really provoking. 
Lord reminds us that, that practicing justice, we're talking a lot about that today, and requires significantly more than just do no harm. You ever heard that? Well, I'm, I, Williams, I am a just and upright man. I, have a, I live a peaceful and quiet life. I really don't have any interaction or obligations or troubles with anybody. I mind my own business. I don't harm anyone. I am a paradigm of American justice. Well, kudos for the peaceful and quiet life because that's biblical. But practicing biblical justice requires a whole lot more than just do no harm. This is what's provoking. It, It means living in a way that adorns the gospel by showing mercy to the vulnerable, to the weak. Look at chapter 24, verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner. Think immigrant. Okay? We have immigrants in our midst. Politicians talk about immigrants all the time. Think sojourner. Okay? Don't pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless. Think orphans. Or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Do what, Moses? Well, when you reap your harvest in your field you for, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Holding life among the poor, for the poor. I want us to think about what Moses is saying here. What's, what's the Lord commanding us here in terms of the what and the why? Okay, so first, the what. What's the command here? Whether it's a field of grain. This isn't terribly hard to understand. Field of grain, a grove of olives. At least I think that's what you call a bunch of olive trees, a grove that you would press to, to create oil, produce oil, or a vineyard of grapes. Those were, those were, by the way, the three major products in the ancient Near East. Oil, wheat, and grapes. Do not consume every last resource available to you. That's the what. That's the command. So that you have something to share with those in need. What's the application? Friends, the the money in our checking and savings and retirement and investment accounts is not ultimately ours. That's really important. It's the Lord's. Do you believe that? I mean, you might not see his name on the statement. You know, the login username might not be the Lord my God when you go into fidelity or whatever you log into, but But biblically, everything in that account is God's. All of it. And he calls us as his people to embrace a lifestyle of generosity where where we're not just, here's the point, we're not just open or willing or available or I'm ready (laughs) to help the poor, but, but we're actually 
careful and faithful to preserve proactively a portion of what we earn, all we earn, all we steward, so that we can care for them. That's God's heart. That that could mean practical application suggestions. That could mean guarding some of your grocery money so you can actually have people over for hospitality. Uh, that, that could mean sponsoring a child at, at Casa de Esperanza where Fidel and Charo work. That, that could mean giving a portion of your paycheck every month to Kingsway's Mercy Fund that our, that our deacons steward to care for the poor and the weak and the vulnerable inside, outside our church. I, I think the what, how God calls us to love us as people is, is not hard to grasp here. But the why is where the redeemed people of God part ways with the Red Cross, part ways with the United Nations. It, it's what makes, it's the why that makes our giving, our generosity, actually Christian <laughs> or distinctively Christian. And, and Moses gives us two whys in this passage, okay? First, why should we be generous, generous uphold the life of the poor? First, uphold the life of the poor because justice requires it. Justice requires it. But even as I say that, I think, well, Matthew, I thought we were talking about charity here and generosity. What, what, what I decide to give out of the, the freedom of my heart, not what the poor deserve or what justice requires. What, what claim do all these people have on my money? Well, look at verse 19. When Moses says, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Do you know the grammar of that phrase? Is ownership language. It's not just, make sure you toss some their way. The Lord is saying, Israel, the remaining sheaves, olives, grapes that might be out there in your field, they're not yours. They belong to the poor because God, the true landowner, has reserved them for the poor. It's ownership language. To, to exhaust all our resources on ourselves. We can be really good at that, thanks to a company called Amazon, <laughs> and have nothing left to give. And we can be really good at that because we always click pay later. To do that is to pervert the justice due to the poor. Verse 17. To to deny the poor what God says is rightfully theirs. God, think of it this way, friends. God has given us more than an opportunity to provide for the vulnerable. He's, He's given us a responsibility. He's given us a solemn duty. It's it's not an option for wealthy Christians, you know, who have the gift of giving. (laughs) It's God's will for every believer. But, But that's not the why. I mentioned there were two, right? That was the first one. But that's not actually the why that the Lord emphasizes the most in this passage. I'm so grateful for this because... Knowing that you, you ought to do something, right? Or that justice 
requires something. Knowing all that will never make a stingy woman generous or a selfish man compassionate. Because knowing what you ought to do has no power to change your heart. You ever felt that? You ever been in a situation where you were thinking, that is exactly what I ought to do. And on the inside, you're like, there is no way I'm doing that. (laughs) I don't want to do that at all. Just, Just knowing, okay, what's the first why? Because justice requires that you uphold the life of the poor. Okay, but I still don't want to do it. The Lord knows that. And so we really need the second why. And it's found in both verse 18 and verse 22. And it's the why of redemption. There's a reason both verse 18 and verse 22 sandwich, surround, bookend this whole call to do justice by upholding the life of the poor. Moses is literally surrounding the command with the gospel. Think about this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do all of this. What's his point? Israel, practice mercy because you have received so much mercy. That's the why. How has God, Christian, had mercy on us? How's he had mercy on you? Well, I'll tell you, it's in the greater exodus from sin and death that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. That's how, Christian, in giving you Jesus, the gift of himself, Has the Lord your God not been exceedingly, marvelously, beyond your wildest imagination, generous to you? Has he not lavished you with one blessing after another in Christ that you do not deserve and could never earn? Are are we not, brothers and sisters, of all people, intimately familiar with our need for God's mercy and the wealth and riches of God's mercy. Oh, that the world would would taste and see the generosity of Jesus through our practice of the same. It, It is a privilege, not a burden, to tangibly share with others the the very grace we've received. That's a privilege. And if you recognize that you're not generous, please don't pretend that you are. (laughs) Don't try to fake it until you make it or whatever other bad advice we give each other sometimes. If, If you recognize, Matthew, I just, if I'm honest, I don't really care about the poor. If I'm being honest, I'm, I'm selfish and stingy with my wealth. I don't even like what you said earlier that God owns it all. (laughs) Friend, if that's you, I urge you, most important thing you can do, meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, you were a slave in the land of sin and death. It's exactly who you were, just like Israel, without God, without hope in the world. And at, at that very moment, God chose, almighty God chose to not just give you 
2% of himself or part of himself. Or you know, Let me see if I got some change in here. Oh, hey, Williams, uh, here you go. He gave you all of himself. He held nothing back. He, he gave you his whole life, all of himself to you. So, so why should we uphold the life of the poor? Well, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know, do we not know, Kingsway, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christopher Wright says this really well. He's spot on. When Israel forgot its history, she forgot her poor. May, may that not be the case at Kingsway, my friend. Let's not forget the gospel and in so doing forget the poor. Category three, uphold life at work, among the poor. Number three, uphold life in the church. Uphold life in the church. Look at, look at verse five. We're going to go back to 24. We're playing a lot of hopscotch this morning. Verse five of 24. Here's the category where we're going to tackle some of the trickiest verses in this whole passage. Why would Moses, think about this with me, why would he require, not just suggest, encourage, hey, you know, it's generally good advice if you can afford it and there's no major wars going on or public works projects needing more young guys. Why would he insist that a newly married man not be taken away from his bride for a whole year? Well, among other reasons, it gave them the opportunity to have children. Being happy with his wife. Don't you love that phrase? What a a glimpse into the heart of God. And he's not like giggling when he says that. He's rejoicing when he says that. Because he created us men and women. He created marriage. Being happy with your wife includes the joy of physical intimacy. And the gift of conception. In other words, the Lord's commanding Israel, uphold the long-term life of my people. By guarding their offspring, guarding their descendants. And that's exactly, over to chapter 25, why the Lord institutes the practice of something called leveret marriage in this section. Okay? It's derived from the Latin word levere, which means husband's brother. Look at chapter 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And I read that, we read that and we can think, what in the blue blazes? Is this like some covert endorsement of polygamy? I mean, what? (laughs) Have you just abandoned Genesis too? Well, no. Certainly the protection for a vulnerable widow makes some sense. Right? We're we're guarding the broader family in an agrarian society from from property loss. That makes sense. But but why, verse 7, is perpetuating an Israelite man's name? 
as opposed to allowing his line, verse 6, to die out or be blotted out. Why is that a big deal? I mean, sorry, dude, but like, it happens. (laughs) Life goes on. Certainly there will be more of you in the circle of Israelite life. We have to remember a couple things here that are really helpful. At, at this point in history, God's people were defined. Who are the people of God? They were defined in an ethnic or national sense, right? So, so God chose Jacob, man Jacob, and his descendants out of all the other peoples on the earth. And that meant that if the holy race died out, there would be no more people of God. Think about that. Physical descendants were critical to God's purposes, which is why the promise of offspring was at the heart of God's covenant with Abraham. You know, offspring were the the means by which God promised to redeem and bless, not just Israel, but but all the nations of the world. Genesis 15, 5, what did the Lord say to Abram? Look toward heaven, man, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. What, what, did, what did Abraham believe? What did he believe in that moment? He, he believed by faith that God would use his offspring to bring blessing to the entire world. That's what he believed. It was the Lord's way of, if you think about it, fulfilling the promise he made back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when everything went south. And in Genesis 3.15, the Lord said, your offspring shall bruise the head of a serpent, shall destroy the evil one, bring an end to the kingdom of darkness and sin and death, conquer the curse. Offspring have mattered in God's purposes, big time. So which offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would do all that? What, what offspring are we talking about here that would, that would fulfill all the promises of salvation and blessing that God made to Abraham and, and through him the entire world? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, he's quoting Genesis 12 here, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Christ. That is the promise Abraham believed. Do you realize that? That that through his offspring, God would bring salvation. That's the very promise that that Moses exhorts Israel. She's standing on the banks of the Jordan, about to enter the promised land. You're called to believe that same promise. What's the promise? It's the promise of the gospel, brothers and sisters. A failure to build up your brother's house in a biological sense, chapter 25, verse 9, was a refusal to build up God's house in a spiritual sense. That's a big deal. It was a refusal to protect, to nourish, to to provide 
for the offspring of Israel through whom the Messiah would come. It was to treat God's covenant promises and their fulfillment as the light thing of little account. If you got your standal pulled off. <laughs> we need to remember that, that Israel is called by God's name. So by saying, I don't care about the endurance of Israel's name, the unwilling brother is essentially saying, I don't care about the endurance of God's name or the fulfillment of God's purposes through anybody's offspring. And that perspective helps us recognize that that leveret marriage isn't, it's not an awkward institution that modern day Christians have to explain away. Like talking to a non-Christian friend, okay, you know, read anything you want in the Bible, just don't go to Deuteronomy 25. It's like, no, no. Leveret marriage is a powerful reminder, credible illustration, that God has called us to treat the preservation and upbuilding of his people as a matter of the greatest possible importance. Think about this. Who are God's chosen people today? Well, it's not the nation of Israel. As much as the scriptures may suggest that, that the gospel will advance and and power among ethnic Jews at the end of the age, that the chosen people of God are not the nation of Israel. So when we pray for Israel, we're not the nation. Biblically, it's no different than, than praying for England or praying for America. It's, it's not like there's a hierarchy of nations. You know, some are closer to the heart of God. No, because I'm preaching another sermon, Caleb, <laughs> because the people of God have changed. Who are the people of God? We're not an ethnic people. We're a spiritual people. We're the church, Kingsway. And we uphold the life of the church, not not ultimately through physical descendants, but but through spiritual descendants. Not, Not through the biological work of procreation, but the spiritual work of discipleship. The family of God is no longer defined primarily in terms of, you know, my clan. It's the people who have been united to Christ by faith. That's the new family. Which is, by the way, really good news if you're single <laughs> or if you're married and you lose your spouse, you, you're still part of the people of God. And it's that spiritual work of discipleship that's the way we uphold the people of God today in the same way that God called some to uphold it through leveret marriage back in Israel's day. The people of God endure throughout the ages today, not by taking care of your brother's wife, but as one generation is faithful to disciple the next generation. So parents, that's why the priority you place on your kid's spiritual development has to exceed the priority you place on their soccer skills. Full stop. It's why, single friend, the priority you place on telling your coworkers about Jesus must exceed the priority you place on staying in their good graces socially. It's why I love the fact that we have so many retirees who are serving in King's Kids or children's ministry. Why why in the world would you do that after you put all your time in and slaved away and your children are gone and grown? And I'll leave that to the energetic people. I'll just kind of sip my coffee over here. Why is King's Kids full of retirees? 
Because our church believes that discipling the next generation is an every member responsibility. A holy privilege. May the Spirit guard us, my friends. Lord, guard us from the shame of living out our days, spending all of our time, all our money, as if all sorts of interests and things and opportunities and hobbies are more important than the life of God's people. Hunger and thirst for the health of this church. Spend your life contending for the beauty of the bride. Invest the best of your time, the best of your resources, upholding the life of God's people. Why? Because Kingsway isn't a meeting we attend. It's a people that God makes us a part of if you are a member of this church. It's not the fact that you get your needs met here that should be the reason for you remaining here. It's the fact that you've made a holy commitment in the sight of God to love the people that he's united you to. It's so important. A people to whom we make a covenant commitment. A people that that requires sacrifice and hard work and laying down your life and a willingness to be inconvenienced for the sake of building up the church, the people of God. Do you think it was convenient for that brother-in-law to bring his brother's wife into the family? That was fraught with all sorts of perils and problems. And yet God calls us to lay down our lives, to build up his people. May we live that kind of life, friends. Protect justice by upholding the life of your neighbor among the people of God. Right here. Here's the last category. We'll end with, end with this. Uphold life in the public square. Don't have time to linger long here, but just to get us oriented, you may have noticed in these chapters, Moses references all sorts of legal situations or courtroom moments, judicial stuff where life has to be protected. And that just remains the theme, protecting, upholding life. So, so when the priests give instruction about how to handle cases of, of leprosy, which, by the way, also included things like mold in your home or mildew on your clothing. Why does Moses say, Israel, you have to pay attention to what they tell you to do? What's the point? What's the principle? That protecting God's people from sickness and disease is really important. (laughs) Because they're God's people. Obey the priest accordingly, Moses says. And you know what? The Lord instructs us in Romans 13 to take our submission to governing authorities not one bit less seriously today. Think about this. Provided they're not telling us to disobey scripture, our obedience to governing authorities today includes the authority they exercise in matters of public health. And I will leave it at that and allow you to wrestle with what that might mean in your own conscience. We express our trust in the Lord and uphold the life of our neighbor by submitting to the governing authorities God establishes. The same concern for upholding life governs the the prohibition in chapter 24, verse 16, against putting the fathers to death for the sin of the children or or vice versa. What's up with that? Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. How, How might that principle apply today? Well, it means we don't blame, we can be so good at this, we don't blame other people for the wrongs we have done. And we don't 
We don't scorn or shun a whole family because a member of that family is struggling with something or is sinned in a really big way. Nor do we hold an entire race of people responsible for the sins of some members within that race. There's a priority here on personal responsibility as an expression of the justice of God. Because our just God is not, he's not capricious or, or unrestrained. He doesn't just fly off the handle in the judgments he issues. He's, he's perfectly and completely righteous in all his ways. And, and that's why the judicial punishments in chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, they have to be overseen. They have to be measured. They have to be proportional to the crime and, and remain within boundaries that protect human dignity. Application, may the Lord protect us from adopting a tough-on-crime attitude where we support prison sentences that far outweigh the seriousness of a crime. That can get you a round of applause on the campaign trail. But harsher is not always better or more biblical. We're called to uphold life and the consequences parents give children. No less than the consequences judges impose in the courtroom. We, we must contend for Jesus' sake against excessive punishments that would degrade our neighbor instead of upholding their life. All kinds of applications here, friends. Why? Because the Lord of life, our just God, he's not abusive or vindictive in the judgments he issues. May we follow his example. Justice upholds the life of our neighbor at work, for the poor, in the church, and in the public square. But you may have noticed that at the very end of this passage, chapter 25, the Lord explicitly tells Israel to not uphold somebody's life. Did you catch that? The very end. It's the Amalekites. It's the Amalekites. Remember, verse 17, what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So when you get into the land, you must destroy the Amalekites. Their actions toward Israel are a grievous example of unjust war. Go back and read Exodus 17. Israel didn't pose a threat to Amalek. They weren't even trying to attack Amalek. The Israelites were faint. They were weak. They were weary. And not only did Amalek choose that moment to attack them, they they attacked them in the rear. They attacked the weak, the faint, the struggling. Most likely a preponderance of women and, and children. Why did they do that? That's what I want you to see. Look at verse 18. They did not fear God. They didn't fear the Lord of life. Moses, in other words, he's he's ending with this case study of unjustice, injustice, everything that is the opposite of what he's just commanded Israel to do. Why is he ending with that as a case study? Because ultimately, whether or not you uphold your neighbor's life, then or now, it comes down to this choice. Will you fear the Lord your God or not? 
Will you fear the Lord of life or not? Will you remain mindful of him, aware of the life he has given you, aware of the, the mercy he's shown you in Jesus, aware that he's watching, aware that he's listening, aware that he'll hold you accountable? What, what Israel had to remember and not forget was rooted in the fact that her God always remembers and never forgets. Friend, if you've experienced grievous injustice, and many of you in this room have, take comfort in knowing God does not forget. He remembers. Your suffering is not hidden from his eyes. He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. You can trust him. But here's the most remarkable thing of all. You step back and consider all the times. Now let's be honest. All the times. We've sinned against the Lord. We've not practiced justice in these various spheres by holding the life of our neighbor. I mean, are, are we not forced to confess with the psalmist? Psalm 130 verse 3. Oh Lord, oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? I couldn't stand, you couldn't stand. We, we all deserve to have our name blotted out of the book of life, just like Amalek. And yet, that's the exact image the prophet Isaiah uses to capture the riches of God's mercy toward us in the gospel. The cross of Christ where, where justice and mercy meet. Isaiah 43, 25, listen. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. How could a just God do that? That, that is the unasked and unanswered question at the end of this passage. Friend, it's not because he plays favorites. Likes you more than Amalek. No, it's because Jesus endured the Father's wrath against your injustices and my injustices, Christian. That's why. It, it's, it's because the cross, the, the cross stands as a monument to God's absolute justice. What's it shout? He will not let the guilty go unpunished. The cross shouts that. And the cross is a monument to God's unspeakable mercy. Why? What's it shout? Because God takes the curse of our sin upon himself. And that means, please hear this. Hear nothing else this morning. Hear this. The fear of God that compels us to practice justice by upholding the life of our neighbor is not a servile fear, a servile terror of messing up. It's a trembling awe where confidence in God's justice, amazement at God's mercy, it frees us to joyfully follow the Lord of life in upholding life. That's the fear Amalek lacked. That's the fear the Spirit delights to work in us today. And he does that work. He, he awakens our souls to God's justice to God's mercy when we share the Lord's Supper together as a church family. 